Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, for about the fifth week in a row, we're going to look at one verse. And I kind of promise that next week will be the last time. I'll be sorry to see it go, but but, uh, we've been diving into this verse, the 14th verse, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The word to strive there means to pursue as, uh, as if you're running after something. You're running after a, a horse that's bolted or, or a child that's running down towards the road. You bolt after it. You pursue it. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we've been looking at this word holiness. We've seen that holiness belongs properly to God Himself, and that holiness marks out everything about God that is apart from us and above us and different from us. And and yet, holiness is also the way in which God chooses to deal with, with us in our redemption. The Holy One, the Lord Jesus, comes to us, and the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. Now, there's an expression that is found in two of the main prophets of Israel who were contemporaries of each other, and it expresses really the heart of uh, this verse. The first is in Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 6. It reads like this, "'Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel.'" The other is in Hosea chapter 11, verse 9. God is speaking, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Now, you see what the common factor is, this absolute statement that God is the Holy One of Israel. And in the second of those two quotations, God says this, I am God and not a man. In other words, he's describing what it means for God to be holy. God is not human. God is not a creature. God is not us. That was the point of one of our, first point of one of our sermons earlier on. God is not us. And that statement comes from a, a message from Hosea to the people of northern Israel, Ephraim, And it comes as a very surprising thing, this message, because uh, Hosea has reported God's complaint. God's complaint is, in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. That's God's complaint. You think for a moment of someone perhaps who has been a friend and has stopped talking to you or someone that you know well, and suddenly you've, you've noticed that, that as they are coming towards you, they cross the road, or, or they turn aside and talk to other people. They are, they're avoiding you. They're turning from you in some form or another. I'm not just talking to teenagers when I say this. Even grown-up teenagers sometimes have this kind of thing happen, and grown-up teenagers can behave in similar ways. 
that here is God's complaint with his people. You're turning away from me. What would you expect? How would you expect God, who is holy, to deal with that kind of behavior? So here's the framing of the verse. I am God and not human. I'm not like you in any way. I'm not like any creature. I am absolutely different. In my being, there is a clear ontological line between God and people. Why would you expect me to behave the way you might behave in similar circumstances? And he reminds them, I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not do what you expect. I will not come in wrath against you. You're my covenant people. I am your God. You are my people. And because I'm the Holy One, I will not behave like you might behave. I will act out of what I am by my nature, the Holy One in your midst. The other reference in Isaiah is in the context of a promise that there is a day coming in the future, a day coming when the discipline of God, and the discipline of God had been hard on southern Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. There was going to be exile. There was going to be uh, uh, the uh, foreign armies would, would be invading and staying and, and would be remaining there for hundreds of years to come. There were all kinds of struggles and, and awful things that would happen. And God promises that in the end, that discipline would come to an end and that God would send his comfort and his salvation to his people. And he says this, for the Lord God, you, you'll, you'll come to say one day, the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. You'll say that. And so the church is called, shout and sing for joy. Why? Because great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. May that rejoice your heart. May that give you confidence. May that strengthen you when you enjoy the great salvation that he brings. Now, this Holy One of Israel, we know him, the Holy One of Israel as the Holy Trinity. He's made known himself in Christ and by the Holy Spirit in the work of redeeming and sanctifying a holy church and a holy people. That's what we saw last week. He's been at work in drawing together of people that, that he has put aside, marked out for his own, and said, this corporate entity, the church, is mine. It is a holy church. It belongs to God. And these individual people, these believing people, I'm putting a ring around them and I'm saying about these believing people, they are mine. They are saints. They are holy ones. They've been set apart because they belong to me. They belong to God. Hallelujah. But now I want to ask the question that I promised I'd ask last week. 
What does it look like for the church and for the Christian to pursue holiness without which no one can see the Lord? So it's very I want to break it down very practically this morning. What does it look like, first of all, for the church to pursue holiness? Now, remember the ideas that, that we pack into the meaning of this word church. It is a people, a chosen people. It is a holy nation. It is the assembly of God's people. It is the body of Christ. It is the temple in which God dwells. All of that language is used of the church. It is a corporate entity that is holy to the Lord, that the Lord has chosen. The Lord has not chosen to bring salvation to the world outside of His church. There is no salvation outside of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the holy nation. So how does the church as a body then, as a people, how, how do we further our holiness corporately together? Here are the answers that I want to put before you this morning. We do so, first of all, by assembling in the presence of God, assembling in the presence of God. Most of our lives, we are disassembled. Most of our time is taken up in our, in our day-by-day vocations in which we serve God by serving our neighbor and loving our neighbor and doing the task at hand in our daily occupations. But the Bible describes the church in corporate terms, stones that form a building members, like arms and hands and legs, on a body, the body of Christ. People who gather in the presence of the Holy One in our midst. Paul, in Ephesians 2, puts it like this, that the whole structure, that is of the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You have to be together to grow into a holy temple in the Lord, you also being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Or you have Peter describing individual believers as living stones, living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In assembling in public worship, we are in communion with all the saints in heaven and round the earth. The church is one holy Catholic church. It is universal. It is one. It belongs to God. It is holy. And we seek to pursue together what Christ died to make of us, to make us his bride, uh, and that he might present us holy and blameless and irreproachable before the Father. And so we join together as a church, and we confess God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So here you have these two realities. You have the Trinity, 
And you have the assembly, that is the assembly of God's church, the ecclesia. And the thing that binds them together is the covenant. The covenant binds the Trinity and the assembly together because God has covenanted to this particular holy assembly that He will be our God and that we will be His people. Now, what that means practically is that when we gather, we gather to confess the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity is not just an abstract theme for academic discussion by top-notch theologians. The Holy Trinity is the God we worship. It is God. It's what we mean when we use the word God. We mean the Holy Trinity. And we need to confess the Holy Trinity. Christian worship is not Christian worship if it does not confess the Holy Trinity. One of the great, one of the great pieces of liturgy of the past puts it like this. It puts it in, into the mouths of God's church, these words. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, the glorious company of the apostles praise Thee. The goodly fellowship of the prophets praise Thee. The noble army of the martyrs praise Thee. The holy church throughout all the earth doth acknowledge Thee, Father of infinite majesty. Thine honorable, true, and only Son, also the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. We gather to confess to the world, to our Islamic neighbors, this is the God who's revealed Himself, the Holy Trinity. To say to our Jewish neighbors, this is the God that we worship. To say to our pagan neighbors, this is the God that we worship. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confess it. We acknowledge it. And we acknowledge in confessing God to people around us that we know that we are creatures and not God. That we, do, we are not the masters of our own fate. We are not the captains of our own ship. That we are creatures. And we recognize that there is this great divide between us and our Creator. We're saying this publicly when we gather together and assemble together as God's people. We confess together that we are recipients of God's mercy. That when we are together, our very visibility when we assemble here is a testimony to the supernatural event of God separating out people from the mass of humanity that they might assemble in His presence. I am the Holy One in your midst. He's promised that when we're together, we're a temple, and He is there for the presence of God by the Spirit. I am the Holy One in your midst. And we show our holiness as a church by assembling together. Secondly, by attending to the Word of God. When Paul describes, the Apostle Paul describes the gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and so on, these are word gifts. These word gifts are given for three reasons. To equip the saints, to do the work of the ministry, and to build up the body of Christ. So when we're assembled together... We are to attend to the Word of God together. We all hear the Word of God at the same time. God is a message for His church. 
Just as Jesus made clear when he sent his letters to those churches in Asia Minor, recorded in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, and he says to each of them, He who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to hear the promises and the commands of Holy Scripture. We need to have our subconscious washed with the Word. There is something cleansing about being washed with the Word of God as it reaches parts of our being and our makeup and, and, our, and our lives and our minds that nothing else will, and washes them, washes them clean. We need that ministry of the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So a holy church is what? It's a listening church. It's in listening to God, listening to His Word read and preached, that faith is born and faith is nurtured within us, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We must assemble together. We must attend to the Word of God together. And we must apply to the throne of grace together. That's where prayer comes in. We're applying to the throne of grace. We're calling on the name of God. In the book of Revelation, the prayers of the church rise like sweet-smelling incense and pervade heaven. The angels and the archangels and the martyrs and the, and the apostles and the great throng of the redeemed, as it were, enjoy the prayers of the saints as they ascend to heaven. What kind of prayers must we pray together corporately? Prayers of penitence. Prayers of repentance. I mean, we're holy because God has set us apart by His election. We're holy because Christ died for us in redemption. We're holy because the Holy Spirit dwells among the church assembled. But we know perfectly well that as a church, as people, as a corporate body, we are not holy. Martin Luther said the face of the church is the face of a sinner. And yet God's purpose is, God's purpose is that we should be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that day hasn't come yet. So the holiness of the church is not visible in us. It becomes visible when we together confess our sins to God. You see, the holiness of the church is not so much seen in our wearing our piety on our sleeve, as it were, but in confessing our impiety to God publicly. When the church assumes an air of moral superiority over things that are going on in our society, it is not making its holiness visible to the world. It's making its hypocrisy visible to the world. This is not the place for blowing our own trumpet. This is the place for humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And when the world sees that, it begins to believe what we have to say. Prayers of penitence, prayers of praise. 
Together we praise God. We, we pour out our hearts to God. That's what Jesus models in, in Hebrews chapter 2 when he says, when Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He is our worship leader, gathering up all of our songs of praise and funneling them, as it were, to the Father. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? Hallowed be thy name. And that name is, that prayer is effectively a prayer that God would fully manifest his name as the Holy One in our midst, something only God may do. When we ask, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that our Father would take all things into his hands and establish his will and his rule in the world, subduing every thought and every action and bringing everything into subjection to Jesus Christ. And then there are prayers of please. As we humbly come before God and we, and we direct towards Him corporally together the cries of our heart, the need for our daily bread, for God's providential care and good government of the world, what are we saying to the world as they watch or listen in? We're saying to the world, we believe that life and breath and everything we are and have and hope to be is dependent on the good and kindly gift of our Heavenly Father. Well, that, I think, is how the church pursues holiness as a corporate entity. But what does it look like for the Christian to pursue holiness? I'm going to run through a lot of things here that are very, very quickly so that I don't take up too much of your your time at this point. But let's just Let's just notice, first of all, that it says in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. That is, us as individuals. So how can I pursue that? Number one, by using the means of grace. What are the means of grace? The Word of God preached and the sacraments. Those are God's provision for you to grow in grace. That's how He nourishes your soul. That's how He builds you up. That's how He makes you strong. That's how He reveals His will to you. That's how He directs and guides you as an individual as well as the church at large. Use the means of grace. Already, the writer to the Hebrews has said in chapter 10, not neglecting to meet together. You won't grow as a Christian. You will not go on as a Christian if you don't meet together regularly with God's people. Your little bit of fire will soon go out unless you're thrown back into the fire again to warm each other up, as it were, in the faith before being disassembled for the rest of the week. Use the means of grace. Believe the Word of God. Back in verse 5 of this chapter, the author writes to these people and says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The Word of God is a word for you as daughters and sons of the heavenly Father. Thirdly, accept the discipline of God. We're all going through things in our lives. <laughs> some are really tough. Some aren't as tough as other people's. Some are really bad. But we're all going through things in our lives. Are they random? Are they purposeless? 
Do I walk away from these things only thinking to myself, why do these things happen? Why do bad things happen? This is true corporately, of course, as a church. When a church goes through tough times and difficult things, what's going on to the church? Well, sometimes churches have, a, have an inflated view of what they are, and God needs to humble them under His mighty hand. And what's true of a church is true of individuals. But God uses these things. He uses the difficulties and trials of life. We spent a whole two sermons, I think, looking at this earlier on in this chapter. He uses this to discipline us, to train us, to make us stronger, to firm up our spiritual muscles. Look at verse 11. For for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Accept the discipline of God. Pursue the peace of God. Strive for peace with everyone. We spent some time looking at that. We're to be the people who bring peace into the world. Not provocateurs, but peacemakers. Live a life of faith. That's one, two, three, four, five. Five. Live a life of faith. Uh, when, when we say that we're saved by faith, that faith is not a passive thing. The whole of chapter 11 has been about people living by faith. It's about the life of faith as men and women applied what they believed to their life choices and to their daily walk. And so, as you read Hebrews 11, you find people turning their backs on some things and opening themselves up and reorientating themselves to turn towards other things. So Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain did. Why? Because he listened to God. Noah, by building the ark, that is, in spite of all the evidence against building an ark in the middle of the desert, by building the ark, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, that is, by faith. Abraham left his home, lived in tents all his life because he was looking for the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Live the life of faith. And live the life of Christ. What do I mean by that? Jesus died and rose again. And there are two things that you and I need to do in our everyday lives that reflect that dying and rising. They have have names to them, theological names. One is mortification, and the other is vivification. Got to be careful I say that properly, or I'll get criticized afterwards. Mortification and vivification. I've been practicing it all week. What do we mean by those things? Well, mortification basically means, in the language of John Owen, one of the great teachers of the church, kill sin. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Those were his words. Holiness is a laying aside of what has already been put to death at the cross of the Lord Jesus. 
In Colossians 3, when the apostle is writing to the church of Colossae, he says this to them, we have died because we were crucified with Christ. He's talking about one of the things that we looked at last week, which was our union with Christ, that we are united to Christ, so that when He went to the cross, we were with Him, in Him. When He died, we died in Him. When He rose, we rose in Him. What did He die to? He died to sin, and now He is alive to God. And so when the apostle is speaking to us, he says this, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Reckon yourself. You know, what often happens in temptation is that the tempter, who is a liar, comes along and he says, you can't help yourself. Pay attention to your glands. Pay attention to your instincts. Pay attention to your to, 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 to your, your reasoning and, and your, your thinking and your feelings. You know perfectly well that you can't get out of this. You can't resist this. The Apostle Paul says to us, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And here's what I'm going to tell you about his death. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So what you have to do is, you have to reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All that comes from Romans chapter 6. Now what does that look like? (laughs) Just being absolutely direct. What does that look like? Because this is the basics of Christian behavior. You find yourself under pressure, tempted in one way or another. What should you do? You should stop. Stop right there. And then once you've stopped, I want you to do something that you may rarely do. I want you to engage your mind. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. So stop and think. And then, here is the secret to living the Christian life. Talk to yourself. Seriously. The sanest thing a Christian can do is to learn how to talk to themselves. You say to yourself, self, are you really thinking about doing this? Self, do you remember who you are? You're an adopted child of the king. Self, do you know that you have the almighty power of God, the Holy Trinity, indwelling you, and that you can say no here? Or that you can say yes here, depending on what the, what the particular trial is. You must talk to yourself. 
You mustn't just be driven by other factors, other people, or the external pressures. The more you talk to yourself, the easier it will be to overcome temptation. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Alive to God is the second part. If I'm dead to sin, Jesus already, those sins have already been crucified and dead in Jesus, then it's easy for me then to kill them. But also Jesus rose from the dead, and I rose in him. I have new life. I have the life of God in me, the life of God in the soul of a man or a woman. That's the reality. The Holy Spirit implants that life. He implants this ability within us. This ability to live a godly life is not something I acquired by my works. It's something infused into me by the grace of God in regeneration. The ability to develop new habits of holiness. And these new habits of holiness are connected to the idea of life. And life is connected to the idea of freedom. Where do I go to know how to live my life? Well, I go to the law of God to find out how to live my life. Well, you say, Liam, that was fine until you mentioned the word law. Law is not exactly attractive. I like the idea of being saved by grace, but I don't like you mentioning law at this point. But here's what the law of God does. The law of God enables you to live a life of perfect freedom. The law of God releases you to be your most human self. It's not a burden, but rather it's the way of true freedom. Trains were invented to run on tracks. If a train, and there are children's storybooks, I was reminded by people in the interval uh, between shows. uh, I said the interval there, and then I realized intervals are what you have in between shows. Anyway, forget about that. I was reminded of the children's storybooks about, about, about trains that decide not to run on the tracks. Now, you imagine what would go on. It would be chaos, wouldn't it? It would be disaster. There'd be thousands of casualties. But when a train is on the tracks, it can exercise its trainness to its fullest potential. It can go flying as fast as its little engine can take it and know the freedom of being a train. The law of God provides us with the tracks on which you and I might express our humanity as it was made to be. The freedom, the fullness of life, of what it was, what you were made to be when God made you in the beginning, and what you have been redeemed to be, and equipped to be by the power of the Holy Spirit 
at work within us. And it all comes down to this. When we talk about holiness, we think about God who is set apart. And then we think of ourselves who have been set apart for God. For God. Ultimately, pursuing holiness is pursuing a life that is lived to the max for God and for His pleasure. Let's pray. We pray, Father, that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, stir us up to pursue after holiness, without which no one will see You. We pray for the help and enabling of Your Spirit in running the race before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.